John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you do, ask in my name, This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated unless you would like to stand for the remainder of the sermon. God be with you if you make that choice. We have been making our way through a series that we are calling Axioms, um, and each time uh, around the fall, this time of the year, we try and get to a point to where we address um, our vision, our values, and our goals uh, as a church, and we like to revisit them and kind of analyze where we are in conjunction with those and remind us, not just as preachers and pastors, but as the body of the church, where we are going and what's the whole purpose of us gathering here together. Yes, it's all about Jesus. Yes, we gather together because we love the Lord with all of who we are or attempting to and do the same with our neighbors. Uh, But what what are the core vision and values? We've said gospel community and mission. You see it everywhere out in the lobby where we will serve coffee again one day. You've seen it on the bottom of our logos, on the back of t-shirts. You've seen it's all about Jesus. You've seen all those things. But what's our vision statement? We read this a couple weeks ago. Our vision is to see people transformed by the gospel. So there's gospel, good news. Experience life in community, community, and live live out their lives for the glory of God and the good of their neighbors. That's living life on mission. And so how do we accomplish that? How do we accomplish this vision? Well, we have that's our mission. Our mission statement is what we read a couple weeks ago, but I'm just going to kind of simplify it and, and narrow it down because the mission statement is really pointing to one key area that we're focusing on as we go through the Axiom series. It's to become more fully formed followers of Jesus. 
discipleship, right? It's the word of discipleship. It's studying under a master and becoming more like them. And that master to us is Jesus Christ. And so our mission is to become, through a life of discipleship, more fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. And so to do that, we have been using these axioms. Last week was our first axiom. It was God is always present and at work. And these axioms are really just, they're principles that help us live our lives in such a way that we become more fully followers, fully formed followers of Jesus. But they're also a lens through which Jesus viewed the world. They're the lens through which Jesus interacted with the world around him. Jesus truly believed that God was always present and at work. You even saw in the text that was read to you from John 14 this morning. Jesus lived that way. And so if, that is, if that's true, if last week's axiom, which is like the foundation of what we're going to be talking about in all of our seven axioms, God is always present and at work, we understand that to be true. Guys, I'm multitasking right now, and you can figure out how hard this is because I'm rambling now. This is a whiteboard. God is always present and at work, and we understand that to be true, um, but it really kind of feels detached. And, like, and, and Parker did a wonderful job of bringing that to the reality of our lives and how we act it out. But I feel as though sometimes we can, we can do, as Parker had mentioned last week, we can take this idea of God is always present and at work and create it into this secondary hallmark, a new hallmark statement that we believe but does absolutely nothing to change the way that we live our lives. And so it begs the question when we ask, well, when we say that God's always present and at work, it begs the question, well, then what's God like? If God is always present in, in me, through me, around me, always at work, in my relationships, at my job, at your job, in the midst of all of our lives, then what's he like? What is God really like? Well, there's a, there's a doctrine that we hold here at Westside. Um, it's called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this is, a, this is a very powerful and true and biblical characteristic of the nature of God, um, but it only scratches the surface of, of the characteristics and qualities of God himself. But we could start there. We could say, what, what's God like? He's like the Trinity. The Trinity is the fact that we believe in one God, one God and three distinct persons, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The, those three persons are not one another, but they are all God. And they are, they are all God and they are all good. And that's good news for us, right? We can draw an implication from that to our lives because they are a, God is a community in and of himself with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, we see in the beginning, God, the Father, created everything. And then we see the presence of the Spirit. The, the Spirit hovered over the waters. And then in John chapter 1, we hear that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God. So even at the beginning of creation, we have God, crea we have God creating everything in his community in, in the three distinct persons of his deity. And that's good news for us because we're created in his image, right? We are created in the image and likeness of God, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And so that means that we can draw implications of living life not alone or not doing our Christian walk by ourselves alone at home with our Bible and the TV on by ourselves, but we live our lives in community. And so that's good, but it still seems as though like it's a, a distant theological knowledge that doesn't really truly impact my life on a day-to-day -day basis. What is God really like? In John chapter, we read two texts to you this morning. One of them was snuck into the worship team, uh, snuck into the worship gathering, where we actually had Psalm 103 and portions of that read to you. We're going to be revisiting that in the first point. But in John 14, the text that was read from the pulpit over here, Jesus actually likens God to a father, to a father figure. And all of us live our lives 
through the lens of our experiences, right? Like we, we live our lives and interact with our friends and our families through the experiences that we have, either with them or someone else. Someone in the past hurt you, and so you tread around lightly and don't make friends easily because you don't want to be hurt again. That's you living through your past experience. Well, we do that a lot with our fathers, for example. If Jesus is likening God to a father in this passage, then let's take a moment to look at our earthly fathers here, here on this planet and on our own lives. Maybe you had a father who was never around, or maybe you never even knew your dad. Maybe you never had a relationship with your dad because he was never physically present. And so we take that experience and then we move it and shift it to the character of God. And we think God is this distant person who's never around and, and never available when I need him or even when I don't. Or maybe you had a father who was abusive physically or, or verbally, and that played a a very significant toll on you, and it, and it likely still is. And therefore, we, t we take that experience and you lay it onto the character of God and assume that he is just waiting for you to slip up and throw that bolt of lightning or hit you over the head with a two-by-four or burn you like a pile of ants with a magnifying glass. And that we adhere to that view of God as well. Um, but Jesus likens to God as a father, and if we, if I'm going to use an art terminology here, I majored in art but never got a degree. There's tons of artwork around our house, but I'm not any good at it. But I know a little bit about it, so I'm going to use an illustration here. It's not merely coincidental that many of us have painted our poor experience of fathers on the canvas of God's character. We take, we take all of these experiences and we paint them onto the canvas of what we think God's character is like. And in reality, it's nothing like that at all. Um, and even when someone tells us that it is not like that, we live as though it really still is. Um, maybe this illustration will help. Uh, James Dobson, um, the founder of Focus on the Family, uh, wrote a book called Bringing Up Boys. He's also wrote about 17,000 other books that I'll never catch up with. He's written a lot of stuff. But if you're a dad or you're having a son um, or you have a son on the way or something, I would recommend Bringing Up Boys. It's a wonderful book. Uh, he has a quote in here where he talks about an old friend. And this friend grew up with a pretty absent dad. I mean, he was still around, but the dad seemed mentally checked out from what I was reading in this book. And he was counseling this, this friend of his, and, and uh, his friend told him, my, I would wait for my dad to show up at baseball games, and he would promise to be there, and then he would show up for five minutes wearing a suit with two other guys in suits, and then they would leave doing whatever he needed to do for business. Never around to have the meaningful, deep, life lesson conversations as I was a child. And then James Dobson talks about how this man was in his 50s, and he went to his dad's funeral. And this is what he said. He said, my friend stood alone before his dad's casket at the funeral home and said sorrowfully, Dad, we could have shared so much love together, but I never really knew you. I never really knew you. This is often where we're at with our view of what God is like, that it's this detached relationship. Um, we hear this relationship that people talk about having with God, and we don't really know what that means because we don't experience God in that way because we don't know what he is like. We don't have this intimate relationship with God that people talk about that we feel so estranged from. And so what we do is we take these ideas, the, 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 we, we paint the uh, poor expressions and experiences that we've had from our fathers or other people or family members and paint them on the canvas of God's character, and we end up viewing God and living our lives in different or inaccurate or maybe even wrong ways. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to unpack two things. Number one, we're going to unpack those wrong ways that we view God, 
And number two, we're going to see what God really is like. And Psalm 103, the passage that was read to you during the time of singing, was, um, is, is, we're going to break that down and use that to almost combat these false views of God. So number one, the wrong ways that we view God. Number one, how about this, the distant deity. These are all going to be like paired Ds, so it's going to be easy for you to remember. Or if you like to write down things that are, uh, what's the word? What's it when, the, when they have alliterated? That's it. Thanks, Kayla. Yep, here we go, the distant deity. This is the kind of God that is like distant and absent when we need him the most. So this is kind of like that, that same idea that we talked about with the, I went to art school, but like I said, I'm not any good. So this is a God up in the clouds. That's a cloud, that's a Mario cloud. Um, he's distant when we need him most. Uh, he's like, it's, it's where we get this language like he's the man upstairs or the great big man in the sky or the voice from the clouds that I'm gonna toss up a prayer to the Lord, all of those things. He's this God who, is, who, who we know about him. He, he, he's endearing to us. He loves us and cares about us. He's true. He's the ruler and the king over everything, but he's not involved in my life really all that much. Listen to what uh, Gravity Leadership Academy book has to say about this God. The absent God is ancient and true, but he's not very relevant. He does love you, and he wants good things for you, but he doesn't really impact you where you live. He's like this warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you watch videos of your grown kids when they were little, or sip coffee in the morning or go on a good vacation. Sometimes you feel him, but most of the time he's not really there. And if he cares for you personally, you don't usually experience it. This is, this is the viewing God as a, as a distant deity, someone who is unattainable and far removed from us. I like how Pastor Jason said it, almost a, a God who, who created everything and spun a top and like stepped back and watched it spin. But we have a completely different view of God in Scripture from Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. Now, I know what you're thinking. This sounds like a, a king sounds exactly like this guy who would sit up on a throne and just watch everything happen. But that word in the Hebrew that is using that passage in the heavens, establishes throne in the heavens, it doesn't mean this idea that we've come up with with hallmark cards of like the clouds in the sky and the sunbeams coming through. Sunbeams coming through. It's actually this, the, the word literally translates to like the air around you, the space around you. That he has established his throne between me and this pew, between me and you in the back, between you and your family members and your friends and the space all around you and in and with through you and everything that you do. And that's why the very next line says, and his kingdom rules over all, over everybody, because he's physically here. He was here when you got mad in the parking lot this morning because someone took the closest spot, when you spilled your coffee before you even got into the car, when you were wrangling your children to get that left shoe on because it's come off four times before you got out the door. He was in the midst of all of those things. God is here. Just like we said with our first axiom, God is always present and at work. So that's the first one. How about this next one? This next one is the demanding dictator or the demanding judge. This is an idea that we have about God being like an angry judge, like a harsh judge, someone that you're standing before him and he's just kind of looking through your rap sheet of all the stuff that you have done and everything that you have failed at. And a lot of us, a lot of us view God this way. I'm going to try and draw. Wait, no. How about I do this? This is what I should have done in the first service. There you go. There's some scales. I tried to draw a gavel and it looked like an air horn. Um, I don't know why I'm drawing these, but it's fun for me. So, um, did that get, oh yeah, I did that wrong. Anyways, sorry, I'm just noticing a failure that I made, and that's okay. Uh, so, the demanding, uh, the demanding, the demanding judge, 
that God is someone who looks at it. Well, this is what the GLA guys have to say in their book. It says, this God vacillates between being disappointed or annoyed with you. Like, how dare you? Why are you still like this? I'm so tired of this. And using violence or retribution to get your behavior in line. Like, like this is the language that we get. Like, God really woke me up with that one, man. Like, I was almost in a car accident, and he really, he really woke me up with that one. i got to get my life right. Um, or, or maybe even not, not a demanding judge, but a demanding dictator. Um, like Hitler. Like, like God is this this Hitler characteristic person who's ruling over and dictating everything in his, in his land and his kingdom. And if you mess up one time, it's often a boxcar for you. Like, that's the kind of God that we view when we view this God as like a demanding judge or a demanding dictator. But we have more good news from Psalm 103. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Like, that's the complete antithesis of an angry judge or a dictator. Somebody who is merciful, knowing that in the midst of our wrongs, in the midst of our failures and our sins in his kingdom and in this world that he created, he is merciful. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. It's why we, it's why we sing what we sing when we sing that song, His Mercy is More. What patience would wait as we constantly roam what father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy, his grace, his love, his steadfast love is more. So we have the demanding dictator. We have the distant deity. We also have this one, the, the deterministic director. This is, this is somebody who's like a micromanager. Like, well, I know somebody. This is George Lucas. Like, this is viewing God as like an overbearing. If George Lucas sees this, please don't sue me or come after me for defamation. Um, it's, it's, like a, it's like a film director, right? Like, we view God as the, that's an Instagram lens. It's like a camera. We view God as like this film director who uh, is, let me talk about George Lucas, and I'll draw the line here. If you, if you research on George Lucas making all of the Star Wars films in the past, and you talk to everyone other than George Lucas, like the cinematography crew and the lighting and the makeups and the sound effects and all those people, he, he was not able to keep his hands off of anything that they were involved in. That was their job. I mean, he was notorious for walking over to the camera and removing the cinematographer so he could shoot the scene. He was notorious for coming into writing and all of that stuff and, and, and picking things apart. And we ascribe that to God. Like, like, we, just, we ascribe this character to him. Like, the movie, for instance, instead of Star Wars, is our lives, and we are the actors. Like, we are the actors in our own movie, but God is the micromanaging, determined director to make sure that we do every single step in the absolute right and proper way. This is, this is viewing life like, I, I, heard, I can't remember the, the author who said this, but she talked about being so overwhelmed with this sense of this micromanaging God that she would wake up in the morning and wait for the will of God to tell her to open her eyes. And then to which leg to put her trousers on first, and then which leg to put or which arm, which leg to put your jacket on, which uh, when to put this on, and like who to speak to first, and all of that. And and that sounds silly, but we do that from time to time. Like think about having a new job opportunity or a new career. The amount of times that we pray for the, this language of God to open a door, to close a door, or to guide and make sure that we we are on the right path. Because if we're not, then we must be outside of God's will. That's viewing God in a wrong way as a determined director, as a micromanager in the midst of our lives. But Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Compassion. A God that... A, a, 
just means come down, comes down to us, condescends to us with his compassion and with his love, knows that in the midst of, of the lives that we are allowed to live and the steps we are allowed to take and the jobs we are allowed to seek out, and if we have five different jobs and we choose one instead of the other four, he is with us regardless of whether or not the other four ended up getting selected in some alternate universe timeline. Like, it, the, the paths in which we walk, God is with us and compassionately, and compassionately, compassionately alongside us every single step of the way. And he knows and remembers that we are human. He knows and remembers the fall, yet still he comes to us in the midst of every decision that we make in our life. I mean, if everybody was constantly in the will of God all the time, I doubt we'd ever have anything, anybody in prison, anyone in jail, anyone betraying their spouses, anything like that going on ever. We would, everybody would be that. But we live in a world where, where people are allowed to make their own decisions and suffer the consequences for them. And God is good and alongside us and with us in the midst of all of those choices. So, we have the distant deity, the demanding judge, the deterministic director, and then lastly, we have the doting granddad. The doting granddad. Uh, this is like when we view. This is like when we view God as like a. I don't know, like this grandpa sitting at a computer, like scrolling through our Facebook and making sure that we're doing. I'm sorry, looking at everything that, you guys know how I am with multitasking. What's the grandpa? Is it, oh, nope, here we go. This is why we're doing this. There we go. The grandpa who basically approves and affirms everything you do, like this is the epitome of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is the gospel where if you pray hard enough, if you give enough, and if you do all the right things, then your life will be full sacks of cash, and you will never get sick, and you will have the good car and the good house and no arguments with your spouse, and all of your friendships are going well. But if the moment something comes out of line and you get a bill in the mail that you weren't expecting or you get a bad diagnosis or anything like that, then something must be wrong. And generally, we, we, we ascribe the wrongness to God. We ascribe the wrongness like a parent who's picking up their grandkids from their parents' house and saying, why'd you give them so much sugar? Like, there's a problem here, and you guys know how it is. They get so much sugar when they're at grandparents' house. But that's the way that we ascribe the badness to God, and like, it, like there's, no, there's, there's no issue or, or wrong in our own lives. But in Psalm 103, 3 through 5, it says, God who forgives all your sins that you'll never actually do ever because you're good. Wait, it doesn't say that. It says, who forgives all your sins who heals you of all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love, and who satisfies you with good. And Psalm 103 tells us about a characteristic of God that shows us that we will sin, but in the, midst of it, in the midst of that, he forgives us of our sins and our iniquities, that we will be ill, we will be sick and not well. We will suffer... We will suffer failures of our own and, and failures at the hands of others. And it says that he satisfies us, not with the good house and the picket fence and the golden retriever and the boat and all of that stuff. It says he satisfies us with good. And he gives us his love and his mercy and crowns us with those things. He's a God who sees us in our sin, our sickness, and our sorrows because they will happen. And he satisfies us with love, mercy, and good. Now, there's a word for all of these wrong views that we have of God. Like, we've looked at the, the distant deity, the demanding judge, the, the, the determined director, and the doting granddad. And it's a four-letter word for a reason. Um, these are called idols. 
These are called idols. Idols are essentially a physical or mental or philosophical construct that we put in the place of God truly in our lives. And these are all wrong views of God because they always end up leaving us alone to ourselves. In the end, God's too far away from me. In the end, God is only here to punish me. In the end, I can't ever do anything inside the will of God. And in the end, nothing is ever good enough because I don't have the life that I thought that I deserved. Let me say it this way. An un- these, these are unbiblical gods. And an unbiblical god is an idol that is, that is waiting to crumble. An unbiblical God is an idol that is just waiting to fall apart. And when that falls apart, what are you left with? Um, There's no hope. There's no peace or joy. You're just left to yourself and your issues and your problems. But thank God that is not the God that we serve. Thank God that is not the God and his characteristics that we see in God's word. And you say, look, all of these are fine. Like, uh, knowing that God is not like this is is right. I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds like everything I ever heard in Sunday school growing up and when I was going to Kidside and all of these other things, it, it makes sense to me, but I've never met somebody who like emulates the Psalm 103s of what God really is like. My spouse has, has, has betrayed me or hurt me far too long, or I've been hurting others. My friendships and relationships are falling apart. My finances are, are out of order, and I've never met somebody who comes along and meets me with love and peace and graciousness and steadfast love and joy. Have we seen someone like this? We have. We have, and I can't flip this because it'd be upside down because I did it wrong. But God is like Jesus. That's our second axiom. God is like Jesus. He really is like Jesus. Like, we, we spend our lives looking for, I mean, think about it. When, like, when you look for a friendship or you look for a partner or you look for someone you want to be married to or whatever for the rest of your life, you look for somebody who generally embodies most of these characteristics. Somebody who is compassionate towards you, somebody who loves you, somebody who fulfills you in the ways that you think you need to be fulfilled, or maybe even the ways that you were designed to be fulfilled. But they all fall short of the characteristics of God, and that is why we have Jesus Christ. That is why God sent His Son to us, because God really is like Jesus. I mean, listen to these words. In John chapter 14 that was read to you, Phil comes to Jesus and says, show us the Father. Like, it's the same question that we're asking this morning. What is God like? Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I've been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Phil. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We do this a lot sometimes here um, and in every other church in North America and around the world. We breeze over a line that was just read, that Jesus spoke. I'm going to read this again, very slowly. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You've got to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking this. Jesus likened, this is, this is, Jesus is within earshot of his disciples. Jesus is within earshot of people who are just following him, listening to him teaching. He's also within earshot of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and people who were steeped in the law and knew everything there was to know about God from the Old Testament. And they heard him say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. It was a monumental statement. It was unbelievable. That in the midst of the context that he speaks this, 
Within earshot of everybody, he says, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why Jesus was murdered. It wasn't because he rubbed some mud on some guy's eyes and he could see again, or he put that ear back on the, the Roman soldier who Paul chopped his ear off. Not Paul, sorry. Peter, that's the one. Peter chopped his ear off. He's, he, he didn't get killed for feeding 5,000 people with a snack pack from Walmart. He got killed because he said he was God over and over again. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Maybe this will help a little bit. This is a side-by-side -side picture. Um, the one on the left is our daughter. She's like three now. Um, that's Jesse Ray. And on the right, it's me as a baby. Um, we both look very similar in that picture. Uh, and then the next picture on the left is now me in the super cool members-only jacket that I can't find. And Jesse's on the right. Um, it's almost uncanny when you look at some of these pictures of how similar they are. And I know some of you are like this with your kids, too. Very similar in that they, they favor one parent um, much more in terms of looks. And it was really interesting to come across these photos, and I was encouraged to use them as an illustration. But I'm also seeing, like, it's, if you could just take a peek into our world and see Jessie Ray, like, around our house and, and when we go outside and play and all of that stuff, she doesn't just look like me, right? Like, like she is me. She's, she's a part of me. She gets, she, she's not a morning person. She's grumpy in the morning. She gets hangry. Uh, she lays down on the ground and flails her arms when she doesn't get what she wants, and I do that too. Just ask my wife. <laughs> I mean, all joking aside, like it, it's, it's not like Jesse is just this extension of or, or a piece of who I am. Like, yes, it took, it took biologically parts of, of me to create Jesse, but in the midst of that, like, she, she, she has some of the same mannerisms and some, of the, some things that I haven't done in years that she's doing now, which is insane. And it's because she is me. She, she holds my character inside of her. And that's the relationship that God has with Jesus. And that's why we sing, that, that's, that's why, it's for the same reason that we sing when we sing, oh, come let us adore him at Christmas time. Like, um, oh, come let us adore him, the, the God who is uh, Jesus, begotten, not created. Like he is begotten of the Father. He's not created and fashioned. He's, he's from the Father, thereby one with the Father, or one with God. That's the relationship that Jesus has with God. And even goes all the way back to creation, like we mentioned earlier. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. In Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of everything, through whom he also created the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So, so God is like Jesus. We're going to be looking at a few things here, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I want you guys to think that this is, this is work that was done in one week and fully describes the characteristics of God. We're going to name four or five things here um, to see that God is like Jesus, so Jesus has this, and this doesn't even begin to infinitesimally scratch the surface of the character of God and his goodness. But it's what's in our text this morning, so we're going to take a look at it and see. If God is like Jesus, well then let's look at Jesus and ascribe those things to God. That's a, that's a good place to start for us to see when we come to the characteristics of God. So, God is like Jesus. So, the first thing is full of grace and mercy. God is like Jesus, so they are both full of grace and mercy. In chapter, in chapter 14, uh, verse 3, it says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. Grace and mercy. Grace, uh, we've, we've used this definition for grace here at Westside. It's an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. I'm going to dumb it down a little bit more and just call it you, you, not get, you getting what you don't deserve. Grace is you getting something that you don't deserve. Like Mr. Beast, a YouTube millionaire who rolls up to your house and says, here's a free car. That's grace. You didn't earn that, and that's not something that you deserve. But someone rolled around, rolled around and gave you a car and then put it on the Internet. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you do deserve. Like if a judge gives you mercy in the midst of, a, uh, in the midst of an accusation, um, then you get to leave the trial and you're good. But in reality, if you actually did it, you deserve jail time or maybe worse. That's mercy. And so we see these two things here in, in, in verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you. Prepare a place for you. That's grace, man. That's God's grace. For those of us who claim and adhere to the name of Jesus Christ, we will be with him again physically. And he's preparing a place for us. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve that from the life that we live and the decisions that we make, but that is God's grace, and we see it displayed here through Jesus' words saying he's going to go prepare a place for us. Grace and mercy and mercy, full of mercy, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's mercy. Where I am, you may be also. To be able to stand before Jesus Christ and the throne of God and not drop dead is mercy. To be where Jesus is because we were saved out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light, raised dead from our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, as this says in Ephesians. That's mercy. That's mercy. So God is like Jesus, so they're both full of grace and mercy. The second one, God is like Jesus, they're both full of truth, full of truth. Verse 5 and 6 say this, And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm not just the way to salvation. I am the way. I am the way to be brought up out of death and darkness and into life. But he also says he's the truth. He's the truth. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? Like, I've been listening to some of uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson lately, and he talks a lot about truth. He talks a lot about reality. And truth, if you really break it down, uh, he's kind of influenced some of this. I'm not quoting him. If you really kind of break it down, truth is the only reality that we have is truth, right? Like, outside of truth are, are lies and uh, any kind of fabrication of whatever you want to call it, white lies, any of that. But that's not really reality. Like, here's an example of what I'm trying to get at. My generation is really big on social media, the millennial generation. We scroll through Instagram, for example, and we see somebody's life, and they look happy, they look fit, they look healthy, and they're posting the happiest, th the happiest photo that we've ever seen of them, and we're assuming that their entire day represents their is represented in that one picture. And so then we move one step further and we attempt to post something that makes us look as good or make us feel as good about ourselves and whether it's to be accepted by friends or just self-esteem thing. Now operating in that is, is, is literally a lie. And that's outside of reality. First of all, because it's social media, it's virtual reality, it's not even real. Second of all, it's, it's living your life believe, based on the belief that, that 
that you are believing these lies about yourself, that you're not good enough unless you do X, Y, and Z, that your self-esteem is low unless you do X, Y, and Z. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth in the reality that God created and intended for you to live in. I am the truth for you to live in. I am the truth for you to walk in. And he says, I am the life. So God is like Jesus. They're both full of grace and mercy, and they're both full of truth. But they're also both full of compassion. Compassion. In verse 11, it says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's so great. Like, like we've used this word a couple times, and we're going to sing it later. Condescending. Like, God comes down to us. Jesus is knowing that we are sinful. Knowing that we are dust, as it said in Psalm 103. He comes down and condescends to us and says, Come believe in me. This, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. This is now what needs to be done next. You believe on me and believe that the Father is in me. And if you struggle with that, he goes on to say, like, just, okay, well, uh, believe, believe on the account of the works themselves, on the miracles that are being done and, and creation and all of these other things. And they will eventually point you, if, if, if your heart is in that direction, to understanding and knowing that God is, God is like Jesus, that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. That takes compassion to come down to a creation that has rebelled and thwarted against your every move for thousands of years since you created them. That is compassion. So they're both full of grace and mercy and truth and compassion. And lastly, God is like Jesus, so they are both full of love. They are both full of love. Look down at your Bible, if you've got it with you or if you've got your phone. We'll let that one slide. Look at verse 1 of John chapter 14. I want you to read that to your head silently. Read it in your mind silently. Now let's close our eyes for just a brief moment and I'm going to read that out loud. Imagine Jesus Christ saying this to you. Saying this to us here at Westside this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. I don't know how else you can say a line like that without a motivation of love, of compassionately looking down on creation, compassionately looking at your brothers and sisters who share life with you, knowing that there is so much to worry about. There is so much that goes wrong. There is so much bad news. But God, who is like Jesus, Jesus, who is like God, opens his mouth and says to those around him and says, don't be troubled. I'm here now. Believe in me and believe in him who sent me because we're one. God is like Jesus. And maybe you don't view God this way or you say, these are all understandable and they sound right and they're good, but I don't understand how to actually live this out. Um, a lot of times we really believe these, but we live out what's on the other side of this board. We live out the characters of God, that's, and that really kind of shows what we, the, the wrong characters of God, and that really kind of shows what we actually believe because it's the way that we behave throughout life. Um, and I'll just say this. Um, if, if the God that you're worshiping is not like Jesus, you're not worshiping God. If the God that you're worshiping is not like Jesus, 
You're not worshiping God. Colossians chapter 1 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. If the God we're worshiping is not like Jesus, then we're not worshiping God. But this is God. This is Jesus. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we think about God, if, if, if we find ourselves thinking about one of these other idols, then that really affects and impacts who we are and how we live. And the same goes for the positive side. If we look at God and we think, Jesus, imagine how that would change the way that we live. Really change the way that we live if we believed that. So how do we do that? How do we, what, what's a do for us? What's an action that we can take to show that we are actually believing this by doing it, by behaving this way? Well, the band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response. And I'm going to close with these final thoughts of how we do this. We've been talking about this word kairos for the last few weeks. Um, how do I really behave as though I believe this is true? How do I really behave as though I believe that God really is like Jesus? And we've said that a kairos really is just being aware. It's awareness of where God is already at work in your life. It's like a moment where you have this, this feeling, um, this idea, like maybe your heart's racing fast because you're realizing you're in, an, you're in an argument and somebody's disagreeing with you and you don't like being disagreed with, so you're irritated. That's a kairos. You notice that you're irritated. But in reality, like God wants to meet us there and work in that area of our lives. Like maybe we're too controlling or maybe we feel as though our position is always right. And if we don't get our way, then something's wrong and that's irritating to us. And God meets us in that place. And God shows us you don't have to be in control of everything because you're not. I am. And you have peace in me in the midst of everything that is out of control around you. That's a Kairos moment. A Kairos is essentially noticing where God is already at work in your life. And so how can we behave as though we really believe that God is like Jesus? Here's, here's a practice. We're calling it awareness. At some point this week, um, I just want you to be aware of when you feel you're, you're at your worst or at your best. Maybe, you've, maybe there's a time this week where, where you lashed out and you know you shouldn't have. Or... You're just in a great place in life. You're joyful. And in that moment, ask yourself, how do I imagine or experience God responding to me right now in this moment? Is it like one of these idols? Or is he like Jesus? I'll give you some examples. A friend or a family member hurts you. Do you view God responding to you as this distant deity who doesn't really care about your family problems? Or do you view him like Jesus, who is very well acquainted with family issues, who is with you in the midst of it? 
What about this? You find yourself repeating a pattern of sin. I told myself I wouldn't do this again, and I'm trying really hard to stop. I don't know how to take care of this in my life. Are you viewing God responding to you in that moment as a demanding dictator? As a judge who's counting every single wrong and bad deed that you do and cannot wait to punish you for it? We're like Jesus, full of mercy, grace, truth, compassion, love. How about this? You don't know what the next step is in life. Should I change the tire? Which trouser leg do I put on? Which job offer do I take? Do I take the pay cut or the pay raise? More time at home or more time at work? What's the will of God? In that moment, if you have a kairos and you're torn between a moment like that, you ask yourself, am I viewing God as the micromanager, the director? Where he's ordaining every single area of my life? Or am I viewing him like Jesus, who comes to me on the water in the midst of the storm? Because the storm happens. And he says, peace be still. Or lastly, a bad diagnosis, something goes wrong financially. Are you viewing God as the doting grandfather who sees that you can do no wrong and is shoveling you nothing but blessings and that's all that you're ever gonna get in life? Or do you view him like Jesus, who died for us, who endured and suffered hardship and pain to pay the price for our sin? Do you believe that? Because in the cross, this is our big idea this morning, is that we see the love of God when we look at the Son of God. We see the love of God when we look at the Son of God. Do you want to know what the love of God looks like? Look at Jesus on the cross. There is a creed called the Nicene Creed. And it was written in 325 AD. And it, was just, it was written to solidify what we believe about Jesus who we believe he is. And I think it would be appropriate if we close this morning in reading the Nicene Creed together and declaring what we believe. So if you could stand to your feet this morning, the creed will be on the screen and we will read it out loud together, acknowledging and knowing and reminding ourselves as we read this, God is like Jesus, he really is. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your word and thank you for your son. We don't have to wonder what God is like. We just have to look at Jesus Christ. Remind us of this truth. In the midst of us noticing 
ourselves at our best or at our worst or reacting to a or reacting to a situation in our lives. Holy Spirit, remind us, how are we viewing God? Is it one of the four idols? Or is it like Jesus? Help us in all of these things. We ask it all in the mighty and living name of Jesus Christ. Amen.